Good morning. I want to greet each one in Christ's name this morning. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to continue the study in Ephesians. I hope that you are learning as we go through this book, this letter that Paul wrote. Um, there's things in it that as I dig into this study that I've never noticed before, and so I hope the same thing is true for you, that you're being challenged and can grow spiritually also. But Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, this, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. So, as is true with numerous um, epistles that he wrote, he wrote them or dictated them while he was in prison. And this makes a lot of sense that when he was out of prison, what was he doing? He was out traveling. He was out spreading the good news of the gospel. You could say he didn't have time to stop and write or to have other people write. But when God allowed him to be put in prison, things kind of slowed down for him and it gave him time to write these letters. I think it was also a way for him not to go crazy. Like He seemed to be a man that was thrived on activity, on doing and sharing the gospel. And when he was in prison, he, he probably got very buggy. And writing letters was a way for him to continue to do what God had called him to do. And so it's just interesting to think about that, and we'll see later in this chapter, he again references this idea that he's in prison, and yet he didn't stop preaching and teaching. And that can be a challenge for us, no matter what our stage in life, no matter our physical or financial or whatever abilities God has given us, there's always some way that we can reach out to people. I will admit that I find it difficult to just go up to people that I don't know and share Christ with them. But with Paul, this didn't seem to be an issue. He seemed to... He was not afraid to share with anyone. But he also... People tried to stop him from sharing by putting him in prison, but it didn't work. He still found ways to help the church grow. And so the challenge this morning, a challenge this morning as we begin this message is, are we taking advantages of those opportunities that God puts in our life? Now we'll pick up verse 2 here and get into the study this morning. The first um, verses 2 to 5 are actually what I'm going to spend most of my time talking about, but we will look at the whole passage this morning. But Ephesians 3, verse 2, if, you've, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to, you, to me, to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, hereby, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it was now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets 
by the Spirit. So what is he talking about in verse 2 when it talks about dispensation? That's not a word we use today. Um, What does it mean? It means a, a process or a system of dispersing or dispensing things. So Paul is basically saying that God has used him to be a part of that system of dispensing or dispersing his grace. On the face of it, that sounds kind of haughty or egotistic of Paul. Why would he, why would he say that, well, look at me, God used me to disperse grace to you. But yet, as we continue to look at these verses, we'll see what he's getting after. It's not that Paul is lifting himself up. We get to the end of the chapter and he points it all back to the church and most importantly, to Christ. So it seems like Paul is just full of himself here, but he is not. He's just simply saying that God is just using me as a tool to show you something that he wants to reveal. Now verse 3, if one of you would come to me or stand up here in the pulpit and say, God has revealed something new to me, a mystery that nobody knew before, I would kind of go internally, I would go, whoa, whoa, hold on. Who, who, who are you to think that you have a new revelation? And if, you, and if I stood up here and said the same thing, I've got this new revelation from God, you should stop and go, whoa. So why is it different with Paul here? What is different about it? Why do we just say, okay, Paul, what are you about to reveal to us? Why do we accept it? And that's what I want to look at for the main part of the message this morning. I would say 99 times out of 100 or even higher, maybe 9,999 times out of 1,000, when someone says that God has revealed something new to them, they're either saying something that a false spirit Satan has given them or maybe just their egotistic minds have come up with. So why is it different here with Paul? How can we verify that what he is about to reveal to us is truly from God? What I'm, the story I want to relate to you, um, Terrell has told me numerous times, I hope I don't upset him what I'm going to share. I'm not going to share too many details, but Terrell was in a meetings one time and another minister stood up in the pulpit and claimed that God had revealed something new to him and what came out of his mouth contradicted God's word. So Terrell knew that what the new revelation couldn't be from God. How? It contradicted God's word. Terrell wasn't sure if he should stand up and say something right there, and I don't know what I would have done in that situation. It would have been very hard to stay sitting, but it would have been very hard to stand up and say, hold on, wait a minute, you, what you're saying cannot be from God because it contradicts God's word. So that's how we check what Paul is about to reveal. Is Paul saying what Paul saying true? 
There have been numerous groups, many false religions that have come out of Christianity, that have their roots in Christianity, that will say this very thing about Paul. They will say that Paul did not have the truth. Not everything he said was true. They'll say that Paul got it wrong. I don't believe that's true. I I believe what Paul wrote in the books that are in the Bible are true. But how do I know that? And the key is verifying it with what God had revealed earlier. And that's why it's important. There are people that, I've said this before, but there are people that are saying we don't need the Old Testament as Christians. All we need is the New. We can get all the truth about the Gospel we need from the New Testament. But one of the important reasons to know your Old Testament, at least, maybe not, I don't study it near as much as I study the New Testament, but it's important to know it, to read it, is because of this, that nothing that is revealed later, what was revealed in the New Testament, or if something is revealed to us today, how do we verify it? We go back to the Old Testament and we see if it contradicts that or lines up with it. I was This week I was listening to um, a missionary to Muslims. I was listening to some of his messages online. And one of the fascinating things about Islam is that there are many contradictions within it. And I understand there are Muslims who would claim there are contradictions in God's word. But to them, contradictions mean that an idea, if it's said in a different way, is wrong. It has to say it the same way every time. And so they say, well, that's a contradiction. The Gospels remember parts of Jesus' ministry differently. They say that's a contradiction. We just believe that it's from a different viewpoint. As long as the message that they're teaching is the same, they're not in contradiction. But the, the Muslims have in their theology that if something that came later was revealed to Muhammad, supposedly, revealed to a later imam, then what was earlier is what they called abrogation or abrogated. The new overwrites the old. The old is now no longer true. And if that was true, then any new revelation that came along in Christianity today, we would just have to accept because it's new and it contradicts the old. The old must be wrong. But that's the amazing thing about God's word. We were talking in Sunday school this morning. I didn't even think about the Sunday school lesson at all lining up with this message, but as we were studying, at least in our class, the direction it took, it's fascinating to think about when the new covenant came along, the Jews thought that meant that God was completely abolishing the old. But what did Jesus say as he taught the new covenant? Did he say he came to abolish the old? He came to fulfill it. It was a better, newer, but it wasn't destroying the old. It was fulfilling. It was completing. And we'll look at that more as we go on. So each thing that Paul taught has to line up with the very beginning. You understand what I'm saying? It has to line up with Genesis. It has to line up with the Mosaic Law. Paul, what Paul revealed was nothing that contradicted that. 
If you do find something that's a contradiction, find someone, a Bible scholar, and dig into it more because I think there's an explanation for it that doesn't require you to either reject one or the other, the Old Testament or what Paul wrote in the New. So that's how we check when someone like Paul here says, I have this new revelation. It has to line up with everything that came before it in God's word. So when we look at the new covenant, did it make all the old? No, it fulfilled it. Jesus didn't come to abolish all. He came to fulfill it. So why don't we have to follow the Old Testament Levitical laws? Jesus fulfilled those for us. It's not that they were abolished. It's that he took them on himself so that we didn't have to. Why don't we put teenagers, young adults to death who rebel against their parents? That's what they did in the Old Testament. That law wasn't abolished. It was fulfilled by Christ. He takes that punishment upon himself. And we are called today to even have a higher standard of loving our parents, respecting our parents, loving those around us. When it comes to adultery, each of those things, we now have a better, newer, higher standard. It doesn't abolish the old. It's better than the old. And so that's how we see that. So what is Paul going to reveal here? And we see it in verse 6 that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hidden God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. So what he reveals here is that the gospel, the plan of salvation that God has offered, that's what we looked at uh, when we looked at, uh, in the last message, we looked at Ephesians 2. Paul's talking about the gift that God gave each one of us, the gift of salvation. And here he is clearly stating that this gift isn't just to the Jews as many Jews thought when Jesus was here on earth. They thought that, well, Jesus is a Jew. He's coming as the Messiah. It's only for the Jews. No, he makes it clear that, Paul makes it clear now, this is for all Gentiles also. So how do we know if this is true? Can we see in the Old Testament that this was God's plan all along and that it doesn't contradict God's plan? And I I think there's three points I'm going to make. There's probably others you could think of. But if God only loved the Jews after calling Abraham to leave his home country, why did he keep bringing in non-Jews? And we think of all those stories in the Old Testament. Those aren't stories only in the New. Those are stories in the Old Testament. We have Rahab and Ruth. We see God's love wasn't just for the Jews. He called the Jews. He had a special purpose for them. But he loved all mankind. But that wasn't fully revealed until the New Testament. 
We see it also when he sent Jonah to call the Ninevites to repentance. If God only loved the Jews, why did he call the Ninevites to repentance? Another thing to think about, why did God give Moses the law and ask the Jews to obey it when he knew no man was going to be able to obey all the laws? Only Jesus could do that. It was to show our need for salvation, our need for God. Why did God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son on an altar? Because God wanted to show that one day he would bring salvation to Abraham and all those who believe in God by doing that very thing, allowing his son to be sacrificed. So when Paul started preaching to the Gentiles and bringing them to faith, it didn't contradict what God had taught in the Old Testament. It simply revealed, as, as Paul says here, a mystery, something that God had not completely allowed the Jews to see in the Old Testament. Now, if Paul had taught that salvation now was available only to the Gentiles, we could throw out what Paul had said because that would contradict the covenants that he made with his people. No, the salvation was available to them too. He didn't reject them. He still loved them. So you may ask the question, why didn't God reveal everything to Abraham or to Moses or to King David or Solomon? Why did, not, why did God keep some of this a mystery? And I don't know that we'll ever fully know. I described it in Sunday school this morning that it's almost like a uh, scavenger hunt. If you've ever been involved with one of those or made up one of those for your children, you don't give them the, 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 the full information that they need to find every note or every treasure or everything that you've set up on the scavenger hunt. You reveal it slowly, and it feels like God has done that from the time of Adam to now. Adam had no knowledge of the law of Moses. What was he called to do? He was called to make sacrifices for sin. When the law of Moses was revealed, did it contradict anything God had asked of Adam? No. It was just one step closer to revealing Christ. And we see this beautiful progression, this beautiful slowly revealing more and more. And I think this is true of the end times, of what God has planned after Christ returns to earth. There's a lot, there's, there's these hints given, there's these details that are given. And yet I believe just as with the Jews, we're shown hints and pieces of what the Savior, the Messiah would look like. We have been shown hints and pictures of what is coming down the road. But God hasn't fully revealed that to us because we're not ready for that. We don't need to know that. We're to be faithful in the time that God has placed us. But yet it does not contradict, I don't believe, what came before. Now let's go to verses 11 to 12. According to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Now, afterwards, after Jesus was revealed, after we saw his life here on earth, 
it's much easier to look back and see God's plan and all those verses that were in the Old Testament, the prophecies. We can now easily see it, but they couldn't see it at the time. It wasn't all revealed to them, but yet Paul is saying, now looking back and having a better understanding of who Jesus was, we have boldness. But not only boldness, it's because of our access to the faith in him. He then goes on in verse 13, I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul once again references the suffering that he was going through, his imprisonment. And yet he said he wanted to make sure that that didn't cause the believers in the early church to give up or to be discouraged, but rather for them to be even more bold to see him suffering in prison, but yet remaining faithful. He didn't complain about it, that I can have any, I cannot think of any time in any of his letters that Paul complained about his imprisonment, but rather just spoke about it and then brought glory and praise to God through it. The last message we looked at, the last few verses here in this chapter, we're going to be looking, Paul emphasizes a lot about Christ's love. And so we're going to look at this idea again. I talked about it in my devotions last Sunday. But his agape love. So let's finish reading, uh, not quite finished, but let's read the rest of the verses from 15 to 19. Of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the rich of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ with passes knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. So is there a difference this morning? Here Paul is emphasizing the love of Christ. Is Christ's love the same as God's love? In Ephesians 2, we looked at God's love in coming up with the plan of salvation, fulfilling it. And that love is agape love, according to the Greek. So anyone here know, is this the same love that Christ has for us? Or is it different? According to the Greek word, it is the same love. Is that interesting? Even though you would say that we saw a different side of God with Christ coming and living on earth in the body of a man, and yet he's the same. It's the same God. It's just a part, a different part of God, but yet the same love comes through Him. Him coming and dying on earth, living and walking. It wasn't any different than the God of the Old Testament, even though people may claim that. The God in the Old Testament is different than the God of the New. It's the same God. It's the same, he has the same love 
for his people, for believers. And so it's not, we should be careful, like I mentioned my devotions, it's not the erotic love, it's not the affectionate love, or the brotherly love. This is agape. It's the strongest, the longest lasting love. Sacrificial, giving all, and not demanding repayment for that. This doesn't mean, I want to be clear as we look, think about the last chapter in Ephesians and this chapter, just because there's no way for us to pay it does not mean that God does not want our love in return, our <clears throat> relationship. Why did God go through all this? I'm not saying anything new this morning, but I believe the reason God created humans was because he desired a relationship with them. And that's why he's done everything he's done from Genesis 1-1 to what we know today and what he'll do in the future. It's all because God desires a relationship with humans. And along with that, it's not just a insignificant, casual desire. He has an unending, unchanging love. And do we understand that? Can we grasp that? Paul in verse 18 here. Sorry, not verse. Yeah, the verse 18 where he says the breadth and the length and the depth and the height and all this. It reminded me of the children's song that talks about the love of God is so wide, it's so high, it's so low, you can't get around it and all that. This is what Paul's talking about. Do we grasp God's amazing, incredible love, Jesus' love for us and what he did for us? 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. God is not only walking with us today, helping us today to be faithful, but he's preparing even better for things for us in the future. Now in closing, let's look at the last two verses. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Like I said at the beginning of the message, even though it seemed like Paul was full of himself, he was talking about what God was doing through him, he now closes this part of his letter out by bringing it back to what's most important. It wasn't about Paul. It wasn't about lifting up Paul. And We're not Paulinites today. We're Christians. We're followers of Christ. We're not followers of Paul. We don't look to Paul for our salvation. We look to Christ. And he makes that clear that that's where our focus should be, and I'm so grateful for that. I'm so thankful this morning for God's love to me and to each one of you, and I hope that we each feel that and know that. And if not, I hope we would begin a relationship with God, the one who did all for us because of his love. Lord bless each one of you.